Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Because we're very vulnerable at the very beginning of our lives, when something negative happens, we begin to react to it. And when things are quite negative, we develop strategies to minimize the harm of, of those things. Uh, and slowly, little by little, we develop ideas and thoughts and uh, expectancies and experiences to protect ourselves from the world, especially the negative consequences. And of course, we can think of that as our ego or our sense of self develops where we, we need to be careful about this and you know, watch out for this, and, you know, et cetera. And in my mind, what happens is this begins to cover over that initial energetic, curious sense of self. It doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't transform it. It simply covers over like, like a mask. Uh, you know, we put a mask of, of the ego and it, this filters how we see the world, right? And how we respond to it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jamie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out called Controlling Mental Chaos, which I, I think just right when I read the title, I thought, yeah, I think every one of us has a little bit of mental chaos going on in our lives, just as a <laughs> natural byproduct of the world. I was extremely intrigued. But before we get into the book and your work, I wanted to start by asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've ended up making with your life and your career? Oh, my goodness. Um so my dad was a lawyer uh, who became a judge in, in uh, so I'm, a, I'm originally from uh, Central America, Honduras. So he lived in, in uh, Honduras and uh, was a judge. So he was educated, middle-class, educated uh, individual, very bright. Uh, my mother was a, a homemaker. Uh, and so um, she was very loving, uh, took care of us. And, and so I, I, my upbringing, you know, was, uh, was quite good, actually. I, you know, um, I thought, I, and I, at the age of nine, they decided that I needed to 
uh, go to the U.S. to get a better education because they couldn't provide that for me in, in, in Honduras. And so we had relatives living in L.A. at that time. And so nine years of age, they took me out of my, you know, out of the family home and, and brought me to the U.S. where I had to learn a new language. And, and I think that led me into the reason why I later became a uh, researcher scientist, because it led me to ask all sorts of questions about, you know, uh, my identity. <laughs> who, who am I, really? Because I went from one culture to the other, lost, you know, my language and my siblings and, and parents and so on. Um, so it led me to this quest of trying to find out who I was, uh, my true nature, if you will. Yeah. yeah. From what it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like what you're saying is that at, from the time you were nine years old, you were not actually raised by your parents, but by your relatives? Yes. Yes. Okay, so what does that do for the relationship between you and your parents? Because like on the one hand, you know, their intentions obviously are for you to have a better life and to get educated in a way that you can. At the same time as a nine-year-old kid, like I can't imagine that you're not thinking, wait, why are my parents leaving me here? So oh, yeah. how did that impact the relationship that you have with your parents? Yeah, no, it was uh, interesting because at nine years of age, you're just really beginning to blossom into an adult mind, right? And uh, and I went through a period where I had a lot of doubts about the reasons for why my parents sent me out of uh, their home. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, I thought maybe uh, they couldn't take care of me or they didn't love me enough. That, you know, I went through all those uh, questions. Uh, but then I realized after a certain amount of time that they did it out of love. They really did it because they thought I would become a better person, more educated, have more opportunities. Uh, and so I had a switch in, in perspective. Um, now, I think that in the long run, it helped our relationship. And, and I say that because when you're young, when you're growing up as a teenager, you tend to rebel against the parents that are around you. I didn't go through that. <laughs> you know, I was at a distance from my parents and, you know, I rebelling was, was the last thing that occurred to me. In fact, I, I think I grew to love them more because of that. So in, I think in the long run, it actually helped our relationship. Yeah. Well, this one other thing, you know, as uh, somebody who has been raised all over the world, I always yeah. wonder about sort of adapting to new cultures and kind of what you found shocking when you first got here. Like, uh, you know, because it's funny because when I've lived in other countries, I even come back and have a bit of reverse culture shock. Like, you yeah. know, I've spent six months in Brazil and the reverse culture shock at times is almost worse, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah. I'm wondering, like, you know, when you're nine years old and you're, you know, being forced to give up language, family, culture. Uh, what did you find shocking? What did you find funny? What did you find absurd when you first came to the United States? Well, I think initially it was, uh, it was a shock. Um, everything, well, keep in mind that I came from a very poor village in Central America, in Honduras. Even though my parents were middle class, compared to the U.S., I'd say they were, you know, uh, not that well off. Uh, and so when I came and saw the wealth of things in this country, it was just overwhelming. I mean, the, the first impression I got was 
uh, being on the on the plane flying into LA, LA airport, and seeing the all these lights <laughs> across, you know, my window uh, on the just the countryside, just full of lights, and I thought I must be in heaven. <laughs> you know, that was my first thought. Um, and then you land and you realize, you know, these are people just like me. Uh, unfortunately, I went through a period where once I started school, period where uh, I fell uh, picked on, you know, um, because I came to live with family that lived uh, essentially in a um, a white neighborhood where they hadn't seen a lot of Latinos. And, uh, and so the school was, I was one of the very few Latinos. And so kids responded to me in, in a certain way that took a while to get over, you know, um, mm-hmm. I was the other, if you will. Um, now, yeah. once I got over that, uh, went through high school, things began to change. Uh, I realized that I had more control of who I was, what I was, et cetera. And so things began to change. Yeah. What, what advice did your parents give you about sort of making your way in the world and career paths? Because you know, like I don't imagine any immigrant parent, at least any Indian immigrant parent, would be like, "Hey, we're sending you to the U.S. so you can go become an artist and a creative." Like that is the last thing on their mind. They're like, "We're sending you there so you go become a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer." Uh, but you know, I, I wonder about that. And then the other thing I always am curious about, particularly when people have you know come from other countries to this one and they've spent mm-hmm. the bulk of their life here, is you know how do you retain you know, a sense of culture and heritage and mm-hmm. of course, you know, passing those on to children. If you have children, uh, how does that happen? Like for, for you at least? Yeah, no, I mean, that's such a deep question. So my, my parents, because they, they were educated, they, they valued education and that's the reason why they sent me. Uh, they, they did want me to become a doctor or, or an engineer or, or something like that. But the, the one thing my dad said to me right at the airport when I was taking off, he said, be anything but a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought, why? You're a lawyer. Why shouldn't I become like you? You know, and, uh, I think it reflected a lot of his insecurities and problems that he had had and all that. And, but in fact, that, uh, shape what I, you know, what, what I was interested in, uh, cause I never considered, uh, law as a career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now because I did come, uh, to live with relatives who had an aspect of the culture, you know, um, I, I kept some of it. So I kept, uh, I, I still speak Spanish a little bit, not fluently. Uh, and, and even though they, they were trying to assimilate they also uh, retained a little bit of the culture. They would cook, uh, you know, the meals from back home and celebrate the holidays from back home, et cetera. And so I, I was raised by relatives who maintain a certain amount of the culture, even though they were really embedded in, in the sort of unique uh, English culture. So um, yeah. I have tried in, in, in my life. I don't have children, unfortunately, so I can't speak to, you know, communicating that to my children. But I have tried to maintain, you know, those aspects. I read, I read literature in Spanish and poetry in Spanish and that kind of thing. You know, it keeps, I listen to the music, current music. Uh, mm-hmm. So 
just try to retain that connection a little bit. Well, yeah. you know, the other thing I'm always curious about it, when people come from places like Honduras is sort of what misperceptions the media creates about countries like yours. Because mm. I, you know, it's funny because I took a, a surf trip to El Salvador. And of course, anybody who goes to El Salvador, like in the United States, when you say the word El Salvador, what's synonymous with it is MS-13, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, that's just the reality because that yeah. is the way the media talks about El Salvador. Um, and of course, you know, the moment you leave San Salvador, you kind of realize this is like not this, you know, war zone that people make right. that to be. Although I've heard in San Salvador, the youth hostel there at nighttime, they tell people like after seven o'clock, don't go anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. But so what do you, what misperceptions do you think that the media creates and, and what is the reality that we're not seeing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, Unfortunately, the, the perceptions are sometimes based on, on truth, right? So if you, if you think of Honduras, a lot of people think of poverty, uh, drugs, and, 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 and you, to a certain extent, those things exist. Uh, but what they don't emphasize is really the beauty of the, of the place. I mean, I used to live um, close to the, the ocean. In fact, my parents, when I was growing up, lived on the beach itself and uh and i just remember the most amazing beaches there and when i go back and visit they are the most amazing beaches you know very calm waters of the pacific ocean uh, warm waters not a lot of surfing but it's almost like a a huge swimming pool kind of thing I, and i love it and so the beauty of that the beauty of nature you know those things aren't, aren't emphasized uh, and I think that that's the misperception. When you go there, you do see the poverty, but you get outside the, the big cities, and what you see is just beautiful places. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, talk to me through, talk me through the trajectory that has led you to the research that you do and eventually writing this book. Like what has led you here and what was the impetus mm-hmm. for writing this book? Yeah. So I started mentioning that at the beginning that, that at nine years of age with my move to the U.S., it got me started on these questions. And I think that led me to my interest in psychology. And so, uh, I, uh, got an undergraduate degree in psychology because I wanted to know, you know, what is it that makes me do the things I do? What, who am I really? Uh, why do I act this way? So those were the kinds of things that interested me. And, um, and then I became really dissatisfied with psychological explanations. I wanted to know more about, well, what about the hardware? Well, you know, well, how, how does that involve? How does the brain actually create these psychological feelings? And so I thought, well, maybe I should study that. And so I went into uh, a PhD in neuroscience, which is basically the study of, you know, the, the neurophysiology, neurochemistry and all that of, of the brain, of the hardware. And, and again, I thought, yeah, these questions, I mean, the, uh, this domain of knowledge helped me answer some questions, but there were still a lot of other questions that, uh, that I wasn't satisfied with the answers. And so somewhere along the line, probably early in the beginning of my PhD career, I got interested in meditation. I was introduced to it by a fellow student who who was uh, doing Zen meditation. And I I didn't know anything about it, but he gave me several books to read and I got hooked. I got, uh, I, I realized that this was another way of actually studying the mind and the brain and answering questions of who am I, what am I really, et cetera. And so for about 30 years now, I've been doing uh, contemplative practices, mainly Zen and Vipassana meditation. 
Uh, and again, this is just another perspective, another way of asking or trying to get at the truth of who we are. Uh, and so the, the book really uh, came together as a kind of fusion of all these interests in psychology and neuroscience and these contemplative practices, which gave me some insights into, into things. And at the, like everybody else, I was experiencing my own anxieties, my own fears, my own mental chaos. And, uh, and so I tried to apply the things that I was learning and, and well and behold, I realized that some of these things were actually worked. They, they were effective. And so at the end, uh, after 30 years of, of this, I decided I need to put it all together and, and, and try to help others who are going through kind of similar, uh, feelings of anxiety and fear and depression and, you know, mental chaos. And how did I deal with that? How did I approach it? How did it help me? And then try to explain from the biological perspective, the neuroscience perspective, what may be going on in the brain that causes these changes and that creates the opportunity to do something about it. Yeah. Well, you opened the book early on by saying your mind at birth was original mind, an active, adaptable, energetic, curious, creative mind, one encumbered by problems and with an attitude of openness, eagerness, and lack of preconceptions. While you may no longer, longer identify with such a mind, you may not have lost this treasure completely and it's possible to recover it. This is a journey you're starting. And so I, I wonder, how do we go from that to mental chaos? Like, how did we end up in a place of mental chaos if that's where we start? Like, what is the explanation for what causes that? Obviously, you know, the joke, I, I always think of the TV show Parenthood when uh, the very end, the guy looks at his daughter and she apologizes for all the things she's messed up. And he looks at her and says, parents screw their kids up. That's just what we do. Right. Well, I think, I think most parents who, who have children, who have infants, will recognize what I, I said at the beginning, that, that we come into this world with this sort of openness to us that, that, that is infectious. You know, it, it, the curiosity and it's, it's uh, a sense of energy and, and, and creativity. You know, you watch kids play, uh, they'll entertain themselves with the simplest kinds of things. You know, we don't need to give them all these fancy toys because, you know, their minds are just active. Right. So, yeah. So the question is, how does, how do we then turn to, uh, you know, uh, or become this mental chaos? And, uh, what, what happens is that because we're very vulnerable at the very beginning of our lives, when something negative happens, we begin to react to it. And when things are quite negative, we develop strategies to minimize the harm of, of those things. Uh, and slowly, little by little, we develop ideas and thoughts and uh, expectancies and experiences to protect ourselves from the world, especially the negative consequences. And of course, we can think of that as our ego or our sense of self develops where we, we need to be careful about this and, you know, watch out for this, and, you know, et cetera. And, and, in my mind, what, what happens is this begins to cover over that initial energetic, curious sense of self. It doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't transform it. It simply covers over like, like a mask. Uh, you know, we put a mask of, of the ego and it, this filters how we see the world, right? And how we respond to it. 
and 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 so the the anxieties and the fears come out of that filtering process where we sense a lack of you know lack of things uh, lack of resources etc um, so i think the 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 construction of what i call the virtual self this ego self is slow but over time it gets more and more uh, concrete and so uh, at some point we then begin to believe that that is our ourself this this set of ideas that we've developed when in fact our true nature is really buried deep inside that creative energy source is still in there and uh, you can you can get to it using all sorts of uh, techniques We'll, we'll talk about techniques, but, you know, I, I'm so glad you brought up infants because I have a, a one-year-old nephew. And to your point, it is just, you know, beyond fascinating and inspiring to watch how he navigates the world. Like, everything is interesting to him. <laughs> yeah. uh, and funny enough, like you said, like, you know, my sister said, you guys went and bought him a drum. And instead, we handed him a tin can from his milk. And he's more interested in that. And so th- there are things that I'm personally curious about. Like, this kid finds rhythm in every single sound, whether it's a coffee machine, water, <laughs> like the minute you, you like my, my cousin was holding him, we were driving back to Colorado. And my dad was backing the car out of the driveway. And he said, dude, he was like, he's dancing to the sound of the car backing out of the driveway. <laughs> and I'm like, this is amazing. Like, it, and it doesn't matter what the sound is. Like, that's what's mind boggling to me. Yeah. Um, so one, I'm curious from your research, like, I just want to know from my own personal interest, what might be going on there. Yeah. Um, but the, the other thing that uh, I think is really striking about him, and I had mentioned this in a very previous episode, my, he's just learning to talk and he learned to say mm-hmm. hi. And uh, my sister takes him to places and he literally says hi to everybody. She took him to Target <laughs> and she said, he said hi to every single person there. Um, and, and so I wonder, you know, you talk about these sort of layers that we start to build yeah. like ego and self. Yeah. Is it even possible to prevent that or is that kind of necessary for us to navigate the world like because yeah. i'm guessing that they all all these things that uh you know layer on top of what you call original mind probably serve some positive evolutionary purpose right yeah, absolutely absolutely great question um so we'll want, one of the things to keep in mind is that we don't come into the world we used to think we were blank slates but in fact we come into the world with all sorts of pre-wired uh, ways of behaving, pre-wired ways of learning, if you will, simple rules of associating things, et cetera. And with that simple uh, mind, um, it, it also comes with a high degree of adaptability. You know, we, we call it neuroplasticity in, in, in our field, where you put this brain into any environment and it will adapt to the, the, the things in that environment. So if you put it in a really enriched place where it hears music and it has a lot of people to interact with, it'll grow into this amazing uh, brain. On the other hand, if you put it into a deprived environment, and this has been done with animals, you know, where there's no food, no, no, no friends, no resources, the brain shrinks. It, it adapts to that environment. It, 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 it literally shrinks. Um, and, and so we come with a highly adaptable, uh, organism and, uh, with, with some basic functions already there. And, and things like, uh, language, we believe, some believe is a necessary 
skill that we evolve to communicate with others, right? And so uh, you can probably inhibit that if you place somebody in a, an environment where they don't have other people to talk to or, or relate to, et cetera. But uh, the, uh, the impulse to communicate is, is uh, innate, I think, in us. So it turns out that, in fact, if you look at other animals, uh, you humans are unique in the sense of, of having that kind of rhythm where they can follow yeah, music and tap your, your foot to, to the music and so on. There are very few animals that can do that. Uh, most animals don't have that sense of rhythm or ability to follow a rhythm. Uh, so that's how you, and one of these unique things that we're born with, which we think is innate already there and predisposes us to things like dancing and music and, you know, and, and so on. Uh, but there's yeah. already some predisposed uh, behavior. Mm. Well, I mean, it's making me think back to, to you know, sort of when he was born. I mean, we've been playing music for him since day one. Like, I they basically got him into 90s hip-hop when he was three months old. Every day we'd play <laughs> the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right. and he would smile. But, uh, you know, one thing that I'm curious about is the the sort of role of both genetics and environment in all of this, because... You sort of mentioned, you know, being in a rich environment and, you know, I've been thinking about the way that my nephew, uh, has sort of like grown up. And, you know, for the first probably four months of his life, my sister was at my parents' house and our entire family was there. So this guy woke up like Eddie Murphy and coming to America every day, like literally seven people surrounding a crib, smiling at him. And he must be thinking, I'm a prince. So my sister is like, if it were up to him, we would all be living under the same roof. Like that is his ideal environment. He yeah. loves. It, when people are on that, so I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, oh, I wonder if that has played a role in the fact that he is so outgoing and, and, you know, feels this need to talk to every single person he sees. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, that's another sort of one of these innate uh, behaviors that we come to a certain extent pre-wired, and that is social interacting. Uh, yeah. yeah. From the very beginning, um, babies uh, re recognize their mother's face. And they respond to that face. And, and very quickly, then they start responding to other faces. And what's interesting mm -hmm. is that they will do anything to get that other to respond. Right? They'll smile, they're, they, they'll cry, they'll, you know, they'll draw you in, basically, because they want to have that kind of social interactivity. And, and that's an yeah. important aspect of being human, because we, we have a need for the social uh, interaction. So, yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I it, there were days, you know, when my nephew, like you just have to walk him around or he would get annoyed. And I remember I would take him upstairs and there's pictures of my sister when she was three years old. And every time we step, stood in front of that picture, he would just stop and stare. And I was like, wow, you actually recognize her, <laughs> even though that's a picture of her when she's three years old. You somehow know that's her. <laughs> Yeah, no, inc incredible, right? And that takes, uh, you know, memory and it takes attention and it takes all sorts of processes behind the, the scene to, to do all that, uh, all the mm -hmm. capabilities that we come, come with. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Okay, so you go on to say that older brains still keep the ability to learn new skills or languages into advanced old age, although not as quickly or efficiently as before. The reduction in ability may result from the larger volume of information accumulated. So let's talk about sort of how we go from this original mind to this sort of, you know, chaotic and out of control mm-hmm. mind and mental chaos. Um, and how we basically, you know, sort of redirect it to the point where we, we can learn. Cause to your point, like there are people who learn things at older ages. Like I remember talking mm-hmm. to Daniel Coyle about this and asking him about the talent code. And this is something that struck me. and I'd be really interested to hear your take on mm-hmm. it. Um, we're talking about musical instruments in particular and musical talent because you know, I played a musical instrument and I was telling him, I was like, you know, I was really good. I picked it up really fast. But then 
in adult life, whenever I've tried to learn a musical instrument, I am not as patient. I'm annoyed that I'm not getting good as fast and I always abandon it. Uh, and he told me that, he said, look, he said, is there a, li- are you going to be limited to a degree with age? He said, yes. Like some of the, the neuroplasticity is going to be gone. Right. Um, he said, look, he's like, are you going to open for Guns N' Roses at their next concert? No. <laughs> he said, can you get good enough to impress the hell out of your friends and family? Yeah. Um, so talking about that, like what happens to particularly motor skill development? Because I've noticed this in musical instruments. and I see it uh, in the ocean when I'm surfing and I see it on the mountain when I'm snowboarding. Kids are quick to pick up things. I mean, I, I've seen little kids like just skiing circles around their parents. Like I remember this yeah. little girl going down moguls, looking back at her dad who was talking to me at the top of the lift. He's like, come on, dad, you're dragging. I'm like, wow, okay. Man, like, that's going to be my nephew someday. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, our, our brains, when we're young, they're highly plastic and they learn very quickly. Um, the, as, as you get older and you get more information, that, that plasticity gets reduced to a certain extent. But but again, it never disappears. So you're still able to learn languages. You're still able to learn to ski. But what happens, I think, is because we have so much more information. You know, we now worry about falling and breaking our leg, right? And, and that impedes the, that sense of learning how to ski without any worries, right? Um, and, and so part of the issue is the more information we have, the more it constrains our our abilities to learn, right? Unless we are able to sort of let them go to a certain extent, right? And then it's easier, it gets easier. And and that goes into, you know, I'm sure we'll get into, you know, creativity because Mm. for me, creativity is, is, is an innate thing. We all, we're all creative, but we cover it up, but, but letting go of that cover up is what we need to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that because I, I think that, that, you know, that is something that I see over and over with people, like people who have the creative impulses and you mentioned sort of information and we're effectively drowning in a sea of information. Thanks to yeah. the internet. Um, you know, people like me are contributing to that with podcasts like this one. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of access to information. It's like, you know, I mean, my sister has been very intentional about limiting screen time for my nephew like the only screen time he gets is when he talks to us on facetime um which i'm I'm actually very happy that they're doing that um but you know it it got me thinking like one thing i hear so often when i ask people about what is inhibiting them from doing some creative thing that they say they want to do like i've surveyed our audience multiple times about this often it's fear fear of judgment fear of public opinion um fear of the things that they have absolutely no control over are often the biggest inhibitors um, so one, like, I think we kind of touched on that mm-hmm. fear, but let, let's talk about one, how that fear gets to the point where it just paralyzes people and they don't do this thing that they deep down want to do that is innate to them. Um, and then we'll talk about how to actually get past it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fear is, uh, is really at the core, uh, at least, excuse me, uh, in my mind. It's at the core of the problem of covering this up. Um, so, you know, we're all, we all have, we all have different abilities, right? Um, but it seems to me that the key, again, to uh, creativity is, is being able to open yourself up to 
the, your senses to, to the world, right? Uh, but we need to do it in a very controlled way, right? And, 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 uh, and what happens is that in order to do that, because we're faced with this overwhelming amount of, of information coming in, if you were to suddenly tell the brain, okay, open yourself up to all that information, it would create problems, right? And so you need to do it in a controlled, what I call controlled way. And in order to do that, you need to have a number of things. Uh, you need to be able to have kind of flexibility to, uh, to respond to things. You need to have a kind of an openness to, uh, seeing what's out there, experiencing what's out there. But you also need to have a good amount of memory, a, a good working memory, uh, and, and, and we can develop these things. We can, we can, uh, to a certain extent, uh, increase our ability to remember, for example, by doing certain practices. Um, but you also come with a certain amount already set, right? And so you can't take somebody who has a, a poor memory and, and turn them into an Einstein, right? They can improve, but there are limits to that improvement. And so, so we need to work with what we have. And, and part of what I argue is that the first step is really to, to really recognize and, and accept the limitations that you have, you know, how much creativity, how much musical abilities, how much, you know, uh, you have, and then see if you can work with them, right? If you can expand those, fantastic. If not, just just as well to realize where your limits are and and so you need to come to a stable place where where you accept who you are you accept uh your skills you know uh and then move on from there mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i appreciate this idea of accepting limitations because it kind of goes against the sort of you know you can do be or have anything you want and i'm like wait no no that is like a totally misconstrued platitude where it's like wait in the context in which you can thrive is Ted, that should be amended uh, accordingly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. one thing that you say is while many factors contribute to an uncontrolled mind, the root of the problem is fearful and chaotic thinking, especially one centered on ego-based rumination. One step in the solution is to transform negative, incessant, and obsessive chatter into a more positive form of creative thinking, one that is complex, multifaceted, multilayered, mm -hmm. intricate, elaborate, embellished, flexible and fluent. And then you go on in the second half of the book to give us a model to do that, which mm -hmm. you call um, Ruby, which is Ruby, the three yeah. stages involved recognizing the problem, mm -hmm. understanding the solution, finding balance and implementing answers. Yeah. So I think first, before we can get into those three stages, the stages, I think you have to address that sort of incessant chatter, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because rumination is one of those things like uh, the, the most sort of, you know, profound insight I had about rumination from therapy was that no matter how many times I roommate on this thing that basically was a thing I didn't want. After six months, I woke up and I was like, holy shit, I can replay this thing a thousand times and the outcome is still exactly the same. <laughs> and I was like, no. it took six months to figure that out. Yeah. Like, you know, and I don't even know what the purpose of it was. It was like, is this productive in any way at all? Like, why do we even ruminate to begin with? Yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great question. And I, I go into that into the book. And so this is a key aspect of, of the story that I'm trying to tell. And the idea is that uh, I view rumination as unfocused creativity, 
That is, it's, it's, it's the mind trying to solve a problem, but it just doesn't have the right tools to do it. But it's creativity itself trying to solve whatever issue that you're dealing with. And, and, and so it, 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 it has this sort of feedback loops that it gets into trying to, you know, does this solve it? Does this solve it? How about this? Right. And we get into these mindless loops. Uh, and, but it's, it's the act of creation that's actually trying to solve the problem. Um, and so I view it from that perspective that what, what's needed is not so much get rid of the rumination, get rid of all this noise, if you will, because the noise itself is important. Right. What we need is to refocus it, re, re redirect it, give it the tools that, that it needs to get to the right answer. And, and what has happened is in, in, in my perspective that we have become overly dependent on what I call the rational intellect to solve problems. Now, the rational intellect is a wonderful tool. It can do a wonderful job. But we now realize that it's what we call resource limited. The, the intellect can handle one or two problems and it can do a great job finding you the answers to what those one or two problems. But if it faces 60, 70, 80 different problems all at once, it can't. It, it's not the right tool for that, right? It gets overwhelmed very easily because it doesn't have the working memory capacity, the, the, re, the attentional capacity, et cetera. And so what we need is we need another kind of mindset that can complement the intellect. And this other mindset is what I call non-conceptual awareness. Other people call it open awareness. It's, it's a mindset where, where you're basically opening up your two sensory experience, but in a controlled way. And what that gives you then is access to a number of things that can help the intellect do its job, right? So you need to have the balance between these two things, between rational intellect and non-conceptual awareness in order to effectively, I think, deal with the chaotic mind. Well, I, yeah, I'm just kind of like laughing in one way because I'm thinking, wait, a neuroscientist is questioning the, the validity of rational intellect. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is interesting. Um, yes, I am. <laughs> Well, but you know, I, I, I understand what you're saying because like, then this is like an example I come back to frequently. It's like, I realize like when I have some of my best ideas for, you know, creative work, it's very rarely when I'm actually doing my writing. It's like when I'm surfing or snowboarding mm -hmm. or right. doing something that is unrelated to the work. So let, let's actually bring this down. We've kind of talked about the science behind this. Let's bring it, you know, sort of down to earth and talk about practical application of this when we're thinking about something like, solving a problem in our personal lives or whether it's in our working lives or whether we're stuck creatively. Uh, how do we use the concepts that you have talked about in this book to deal with, you know, let, let's go through all three examples. Um, I'm sorry, the three examples? Uh, Something, you know, personal problem, professional problem, like in a business uh, or, you know, when you're stuck creatively. Yeah. Um, so the. Um, the argument that I, that, that I make is, is that when you are facing a, a problem, part of it is that you sort of dive at it with this intellect and, you know, 
approach, right? And and like I said, the intellect itself is very good if it's that single problem that you're trying to solve. It will have enough memory resources. It'll be um, have enough energy to deal with it. But but keep in mind that you're not dealing with a single problem at a time, and and you, you have. You're thinking about problems at home. You're thinking about the world and all the wars going on. You're thinking about political instability, right? All that is provides this context that 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 is affecting your ability to solve that single problem. And so, part of what you have to deal with is this other stuff. And and this is the uh, the approach that suggested. What you do is you open your mind up to this non conceptual awareness, open awareness. And what that gives you is uh, richness and resources. And, and we know this from the science that it, it also uh, disconnects you from what we call autobiographical memory. So instead of just thinking about things in, in relation to your own ego and your own self, open awareness gives you sort of bypasses that and, and it gives you another perspective on the whole picture. It gives you a global view of things, right? And again, from the science, it shows that when you're in that kind of state, you have this more global uh, perspective where you can see the connections between different things. Um, and it gives you this sort of uh, uh, access to more create creative processes because once you see the big picture and you, and you notice the connections, then you begin to think of novel ways of addressing those things. Right. So, so this is what, what, what I think we, we haven't cultivated in, in our, in our culture is this way of seeing the problem from this bigger perspective. And again, it, it's really the balance between that and your intellect, right? Because once you see the big picture and you see, okay, out of the 60 problems I have, I see that a few of these are related in this way. I'm going to turn that over then to my intellect to help me deal with those issues, right? And it becomes a more solvable problem, right? So it's the balance between the two. Yeah. Well, so, you know, we're talking about the balance between the two. So let's take an example of sort of, I guess one way we could look at this is consumption and creation, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, I read a book like yours and often a lot of the work that I end up doing is inspired by the things that I've read. So what role does the knowledge that we accumulate, uh, whether it's from books, whether mm-hmm. it's from online courses, whether it's from the, the people that have educated us, conversations, like how does that play a role in, and how do we channel, use what you're talking about to channel that into creativity? Because I can tell you like the, the you know, ongoing joke I always say is like, if you're a writer, everybody, you know, every member in your family is at risk of turning, being turned into material in your work. <laughs> right, right. Well, so, you know, from uh, the, the psychological side, we know that there are uh, at least three kinds of uh, ways in which we process in information. Uh, one is called insightful information, where um, we, uh, we, we sort of gain insights into uh, the, the novel patterns that we see in the world, right, or, or in the problem that we're facing. And, and we deal with it that way, right? We come up with new solutions. But another one, which is necessary, is the experiential. That's another uh, kind of way we think. 
where we then utilize the information that we've accumulated, the knowledge that we've gotten from books and from teachers and, and so on, which is accessible to us. We bring that into, uh, in, into the picture and, and use that along with the insightful, uh, information to then address the, uh, address the problem. Now, one interesting thing is that the third way that we see things is this uh, uh, sort of constant repetitive kinds of thinking that that goes on, which which we've already sort of addressed, which I think is is the creative self trying to bring both the insightful and the experiential into some sort of congruency, right? And you get into the 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 loops that we were talking about before. So all those three things. I think combine to sort of address the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know the the interesting thing is that you say creative living or controlled chaos is the essence of the original mind. However, most models yeah. of intelligence leave incessant rumination unaccounted for in terms of creative living. Although some scal- scholars conceive of it as a type of fluid intelligent. What incessant thinking allows for is consideration in a free-flowing, spontaneous way of multiple events to attract many solutions and identify what works. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing is that incessant thinking can also become rumination. Yes. Yes. Which can be very unproductive. Yes. And, and, and that goes to uh, using the, the right set of tools at, at the moment, right? And so mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if you're simply you know, using or, or worrying about things and, and, you know, in this incessant loop, then it becomes counterproductive. But if the incessant loop can access your experience and your insight, uh, and bring it into, uh, addressing the problem, then you may have a, a, a better, uh, uh, resolution of that problem. Well, let's talk uh, about the role of mindfulness in, in mm. all of this, because um, I know that that's a big part of all this. And I, I, the funny thing is, I've just been thinking about a, a problem I've been trying to solve for the last few days, mm-hmm. um, which I've been struggling with, which is, is uh, a technical problem where I'm trying to convert, migrate a set of notes from one tool to another for a client. And I spent half the day yesterday. It's not coming in properly because of the formatting. And in my mind, I'm thinking, <laughs> would I be best suited to just sit and meditate quietly for 10 minutes? Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll come to me. Um, but, you know, you make this distinction, distinction between the observer and the interpreter. So talk to me about sort of mindfulness, because in one way, you know, I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, if I'm stuck on a problem, like sit, if I'm you know, going to be mindful and I close my eyes, I'm going to just incessantly be thinking about the problem. I don't know how productive that's going to be. So talk to me about that. Like, you know, what is the role of mindfulness in taking control of this sort of chaotic mind? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you brought up one issue that I didn't, uh, uh, delve into and, and that's what, what I call the interpreter. So, so, you know, human beings evolve this, uh, uh, ability to make sense of the world. And we have what's been identified as a, uh, part of our brain that literally sits there and comments on the world and the experiences trying to develop a coherent picture of the world. Right. So this is what's called the interpreter. Um, so it tries to explain the things that we see or uh, are happening around us and to us. Right. 
Now, so the interpreter is this, this inner voice that we have that's always commenting on, on what we're doing and what we're facing, et cetera. And, and, and that can be very disruptive when you're trying to solve a problem, right? Because it's sitting in the back saying, no, 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 this is, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. Anyway, um, this is when you need to then approach it with mindfulness. That is mindfulness is really opening yourself up to that experience without trying to change it, without trying to analyze it, without trying to make anything out of it, right? So this is the, the practice. Um, it's simply seeing things as they are and not saying, oh, I need to, to change it. Because by simply seeing things as, as they are, then gives you access to, as I said before, to a set of more creative solutions to bypasses your ego, you know, does all sorts of things, right? Just the, uh, um, taking that moment, pausing, seeing things and not trying to change them. And the, and that's the practice. Unfortunately, you know, we don't do that a lot and our culture hasn't cultivated that sense of being. And, and, uh, what I'm, me and others have argued is that we need to cultivate that so that when we, we can call it up whenever we need it or we're embedded in it at all times, right? This sense of openness and awareness and not needing to change things. So the thought I just had as, as we were mm-hmm. saying that was there's a sort of paradox of creating change with mindfulness is that you actually unlock the ability to create change mm-hmm. by not needing to change things. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's very insightful. Uh, and, and, and the way that you're changing though it, it is different because on the, on the one hand, you, you, you changed it, uh, by letting things be. Sometimes things will change by themselves, right? That's one way of letting things change. Uh, but another one is, you know, because most of the time we want to intervene. We want to be the cause of that change, right? Uh, but sometimes we don't act, uh, in, in, in the right way or, uh, we don't have the right input and, and we actually make things worse. And so stepping back and seeing the whole picture and letting it be may give you access to that. Oh, this is how these things are connected. And then, then you can act right from, from that wiser view. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're making me think like right after this conversation, my thought is, okay, you know what? Let me, let me put this to the test and I'll let you know if I find a solution to this problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Now I'm like, okay, maybe that's the, the answer is let me just, just sit and, you know, sit with it for like 15 minutes, just quietly. And I, you know, I observe and see what comes up. Yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, one of, one of the things that is, it's interesting. Like I said, our culture doesn't, uh, allow us a lot of time to do that. We're always in this problem solving mode, you know, 24 seven, it seems, but evolution, uh, played a trick on us. I think one of, you know, one of the arguments for why we sleep is to give us time to get into that kind of space. And, and there's a lot of evidence now that, that part of the reason why we need sleep is to forget things to let things be and, and get rid of uh-huh. all the junk that we've accumulated. So that's a, that's a really interesting idea that, that we need sleep because we don't provide our brains 
that state of mind during the day to just simply be, let things fall away if they need to, come together if they need to, et cetera. And so we need sleep. So that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, I think that you've given us a lot to think about and you've been very insightful and thought-provoking. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah, so, um, well, let me, can I read something from what I think summarizes for me all this stuff? Yeah. Um, so I think that the solution to the dysfunctional, uncontrolled mind is not to get rid of it, but to place it in the proper environment or context. And we can do this by training the mind, guiding the dynamics back to their natural and original state to deal with the challenges of living in the present moment. And we do that by cultivating this non-conceptual or open awareness. And when we do that, this uncontrolled mind naturally returns to its innate creative nature. So I think that to me summarizes. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share sharing your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, the book is available on Amazon. Um, I have uh, my uh, website is The Unencumbered Mind, The Unencumbered Mind. And so people can, uh, dot com, people can visit that. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.